Well, once again, it's good to have you with us in service today. So glad you're able to join us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 as we move into the second Sunday of 2021. We're continuing in our focus on prayer during 21 days of prayer and fasting. And I want to invite you, if you've not already done so, you can still jump in and be a part of that with us as a church family and as a larger Foursquare church uh, as we turn our focus to the Lord and seek His face for these first 21 days uh, of the of the year uh, in this month of January, uh, I think we would all agree today that prayer is such a critical part of what we need to be doing right now. Uh, as we transition, really, from what was one difficult year and just one, just over one week into 2021, already seeing some of those challenges carry over into the new year. Uh, I watched and grieved this last week, as I'm sure many of you did, at the division and the violence that is so prevalent in our nation and the things that unfolded uh, in our nation's capital this past Wednesday. What's really happening is there is an exposing of what appears to be a deep rift within our nation and within the church. And it's been, of course, not just less this past week, but uh, over really the last number of years uh, and even decades. But it seems to have come to a head in so many ways. And uh, my heart is heavy for our nation. My heart is heavy uh, for the church in America. And so our, our appropriate response in a time like this really is to turn to prayer, to see the impact of the events even of this last week on the church and the witness and the testimony of the church. And while there are so many elements, so many facets, so many dimensions of what's happening in our nation and even around the world politically and socially, the thing I want to focus in on today is what that means for us as the followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be the church in difficult and uncertain times, in times where division exists. And I've got to tell you today, this is nothing new. This is not, this is not unique to our period of history. We see even in Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, that there were incredible challenges that faced the followers of God, the people of God, the children of God, and the nations and the governments that have existed for for hundreds and, and thousands of years around the world, the stories throughout history of the challenges that are faced uh, because of br- the brokenness and the sinfulness of mankind. That we would come to this place today, that we would come to the Word of God today in, 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 a, in a posture of prayer, in the, this posture of prayer and fasting as we start this year, really ask, how should we respond? What is our appropriate response as the church I've been reminded this week about the words of James out of James chapter 1, verse 19, where he writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In so many ways, I believe we're seeing the antithesis of this being played out in our world today, right in front of our eyes, and I don't know about you, but there are days where my nerves just feel completely shot. I, I just feel emotionally and spiritually worn out and tired, not even knowing how to how to respond anymore. 
But it's the warning of Paul here, it's the, uh, rather of James, the encouragement of James to say, we need to slow down, we need to stop. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And as we listen to the words that are broadcast, whether through the media or social media or people even just talking to each other one-on-one, there's so much anger, there is so much frustration. We have to stop. We have to take stock of our own lives. We have to examine our own hearts. We must lay ourselves before the Lord and say, God, would you seek Would you search my heart? Would you expose anything that is wayward in me? And we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, here in just a minute. See, there's an anger that does not produce righteousness, the righteousness that God desires. There's arguments that are made about what Jesus became angry. But there was something about Jesus' life and that he was fully aligned, completely aligned with the heart of God. Even as we talked about last week, that we need to be aligned in prayer with who God is, what his heart is. And Jesus was fully aligned. And so when it comes to issues of of anger and frustration and how we respond to that, we have to to pull back and examine our own hearts before the Lord and say, God, where, where do I stand? Where do I stand in this. In fact, I would encourage you this week, would you take time to read the book of James? Would you read this letter that James wrote to the church? Uh, it's a it's a short it's a short book, but it is so chock full of wisdom for today. As James addresses the way that we talk to each other, the way we engage with each other as as believers as the church, and then how we engage with the world around us. In fact, I'll share some passages out of the book of James. Uh, today for for our message. But I believe that no matter where you stand, where you stand politically, where you where your opinions lie and when your thoughts lie regarding what's happening in our nations is this that as believers that this is a call to prayer and repentance for us. That we are called to pray and we are called to repent. And this is where we have to start. This is where we have to start. This is where uh, that we have to take personal responsibility before the Lord for our own lives, for our own thinking. We have to pray and we have to repent. So I want to share uh, some thoughts out of Scripture today along those lines and create a framework for us, in fact, out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, of what that looks like for the church to repent, to pray, to seek the, the face of the Lord in the midst of, of challenging and difficult times. So let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we're going to read starting in verse 13. This is written, by the way, this is a word that, that came to Solomon after he had completed the construction of the temple. In fact, I'll start reading in verse 12. This is what, what the Lord says. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said, I have, cho- I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens and there is no that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. He goes on, and there's some more things that he shares that, um, I, again, I encourage you to take time to read that. 
uh, on your own. But I want to really unpack and, and work through some of the things that God says here to Solomon, to uh, the, the son of David, who is now the king. He has built this temple. He's built the, the, this great city in Jerusalem. And, and right in the middle of that is the temple of the Lord. God says, this is where my presence will dwell, and this is where I will receive sacrifices from you. The passage here in this word to Solomon in this dream contains a promise and a warning. And here in verses 13 through 18 is what comprises what is this promise from God to his people. And then later on in verses 19 through 22 is this warning where God says to Uh, Solomon in the first passage, he says, if this is how you respond to me, if this is how you come to me, if you come with humility, if you seek my face, if you repent, I will hear from heaven and I will hear your land, heal your land. But later on in verses 19 through 22, he essentially says, if you do your own thing, if you, if you go your own way, if you try to go it on your own, do what you think is the right thing to do, that there will be a destruction that will come because of what is sown, the seeds that are sown will, will, will result in disaster and destruction. So let's look at these three elements, these three elements that God says to Solomon that need to be present in the people of God. Here he's speaking not just to Solomon, he's speaking to the, the people of Israel. He's speaking to God's chosen people, his chosen nation. And uh, in the Old Testament, we know that, that Israel was God's chosen people, and they continue to be very precious people to the Lord. But in, in, our, in our faith, in our, uh, in our witness as a part of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we too have been grafted in, as the Apostle Paul says, and we are now a part of that, that heritage. We're invited into this relationship with the Lord, and, and now as, as God's people, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as his sons and daughters, we're called to align ourselves with these same things that God called his children to do in, in the Old Testament. And so these principles apply for us today as much as they did in the time of Solomon. And so the first is this. This is what God calls his people to do. He says that we need, they, they need to and we need to humble ourselves. That when disaster comes, when, when trouble comes, when things come upon the land that, that are outside of our control. Here in, in Chronicles, God says it's when there is no rain or locusts come and devour the land or there is a plague, something that we're so familiar with, a, a disease that is among the people. He says, if my people who are called by my name, you're my people, but you need to humble yourselves. Humility is a theme, it is a virtue that is highlighted throughout Scripture, that that humility is essential in the life of the believer, that we are called to walk in humility before the Lord. And God knows that pride can creep in. In fact, pride was that it was it was the sin that turned Satan. It was that, that pride that says, I know better. I have my own way. The pride that says, I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. And we justify ourselves. We, we, we look at our own lives and we compare ourselves to those around and we go, well, I'm, I'm okay. The problem lies with that person. And pride affects our thinking. Pride affects our desires. Pride affects our behavior. 
we do what we want, we think what we want, we be, behave what, the, the way that we, however we want to behave, we, and our desires get turned away from the heart of God. And so humility has to be central in the life of the believer, especially when it comes to this attitude of prayer. Paul writes this in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 10. He says, do not be, be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reap what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This idea of reaping and sowing, Paul, Paul ties into this and he says to the church uh, in Galatia, he says, you will reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction in the same way that, that God says to Solomon, if you, if you walk according to the promise, there will be life. But if you, if you do your own thing, there will be destruction. There will be judgment. We reap what we sow. And Paul starts this, this thought here saying this, God cannot be mocked, that we cannot produce something righteous out of something unrighteous. A farmer, when he sows seeds, knows exactly the crop that he will receive from those seeds. If he, if he plants a, a vine, he knows he will get grapes. If he sows corn, he knows he will reap corn and he will be prepared. He will have whatever equipment he needs to reap the harvest that has been sown, the seeds that, we've been sown, that have been sown. And, and, and it's just a simple farming principle. But Paul here uses this analogy, this picture, and he aligns it to our lives. And he says, if you sow to the flesh, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the things of the flesh, what you want, what you desire, your thinking, your, your thoughts, your needs, you will reap destruction. But he says those who would sow to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And that we, out of that, are to not become weary in doing good, but that we would, we would reap a harvest that, that is a, the result of sowing good seed. I mentioned earlier that we see in our nation this rift developing, the exposing of some deep rifts. And, and, not, and I'm not looking at the world, I'm looking at the church. That there are rifts that exist in the church that cause people to do harm to each other, to speak against each other. That we are in, in so many ways that Jesus is not being represented well by his bride and I believe that the, the many of those seeds have been sown not just in, in recent years, but over decades, that there has been a neglect to sow to righteousness, to sow to the Spirit, to please the Spirit. Church, we are called by God to humble ourselves, to seek those places where we have sown seeds that are contrary to the heart of God, to allow Him to show us where we've gone awry, where we've stepped out of line. See, these are crops that are being, uh, being 
exposed, that are being revealed, that are, that have, are the results of seeds that were planted over a long period of time. And we have to stop and we have to examine our lives. We have to humbly say, where am I complicit? But it's not just an individual call. See, God's call to Solomon was that the community would humble themselves, that the whole community would come together and humble itself and pray, that all of Israel would say, I, that, that we as a community come before God and we would humble ourselves. See, the, the pride of our flesh would say this, it's not my fault that I don't have anything to do with. And you can fill in the blank. Whatever, whatever is happening in the nation, in the world around you, that it's easy to go, well, it's not my fault. I'm removed from that or I, I haven't contributed to that. But there's an element of pride even in that, that we are not just individuals, that we are a part of the community, a part of the family of God, and that we together would say, God, where have we gone wrong? Expose our pride. Expose where we think we've known best. Cause us, Lord, to walk in humility before you. That pride becomes exposed. James says in James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And this is really key for us to understand, that God opposes the proud. When, when God says to Solomon that, that if my people who are called my, my name will humble themselves, and then he goes on to say, pray and seek my face. But before the prayer and before the seeking his face, that we would humble ourselves, that they, they in that time and for us today as well, that we would humble ourselves. Why? Because God opposes the proud. That the person who is prideful, who does not come to God with humility, will not receive from God, will not hear his voice, will not see his face. We just got done for uh, all of 2020 asking that question, who is God? And the desire in all of that to say, God, we want to see your face. And my encouragement, even at the beginning of last year, was this, that we would set aside what we think we know, what we think we know about who God is our preconceived ideas, our assumptions. And yes, there's, there's foundational things that have been built into our faith, but I believe there's so much that can creep in and can cloud our thinking, can cloud our perspective of who God is. And it takes humility to come to the word of God, to come before him and say, God, expose the places where I am wrong. That if we come before him with a, a, a heart of pride, it says, God, I, I already know, I already got it figured out, that God says there's a resistance there that he opposes. Not that his heart is not inclined towards you, but there's no room to deposit what he needs to deposit in a prideful life. Church, we need to come with humility before God, that we need to come with contrition and brokenness before him. God goes on to say to, to Solomon that his people would come with humility and then that they would seek and pray and seek his face. That we are called as the people of God to pray out of humility, to pray and seek the face of God. This is an invitation for us to put God first, to put him in his rightful place. It's an invitation to intimacy with him, to seek his face, to come face to face, to, 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 you know, it's like a child that would take 
the, the hands of, of a, a daddy or a mommy or a grandma or a grandpa and, and, and just kind of put their, put their little hands right on those cheeks and come super close and just have that, that intimate moment. It's an invitation to draw close, to be close to him. I heard it said that before we seek his hand, we need to seek his face. Before we seek the hand of God, his hand of provision, his hand of deliverance, before we ask God to do for us, that we need to first seek his face, this face of intimacy to put him first, that all other things, all of the distractions of our lives, all of the things that would would compete for our attention would be put aside and that we would seek his face and his face alone. Just this moment of, of absolute intimacy with God. There's an echo here of the Ten Commandments. In in fact, it's a specific echo of the first three commandments as God gives these to the Israelites when they come out of Egypt as he delivers them into the promised land and he gives them these these instructions, these laws and these commandments. I want to read out of Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 7. This is what God invites the children of Israel into. He says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he shares the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The the first three commandments are all about how we view and how we put God in our lives. And they hold true for us today, that the Ten Commandments ring true for us. They're a call to us today as much as they were for the people of Israel. He says first, this, he, the, first the first commandment, he says that you would have no other gods before me. It's an interesting commandment in this, is that there is only one true God. Now, the the God, the, the, the way that God is spelled there, that no other gods, it's a small g. It's not a deity. It's the things that, that we would put in a preeminent place before God in our lives. Things that we would treat like gods in our lives. And so the question is, what comes before God in your life, in my life? What are the things that we would say, this is more important this holds more value. This is the thing that, that, that I go to first. This is the thing that, that takes up the most of my, my time, my energy, my finances. What is the thing that, that, that I have put in that place? God's call to us is this, that we would have no other gods. Because when other things take that place we miss the opportunity for that intimacy and that closeness that he seeks. The second commandment, you shall have no idols, no 
images in the form of anything on in heaven above or on earth beneath it or the waters below. Now, idolatry for the Israelites was very tangible, that they carved idols and the nations around them carved idols out of wood and stone and, and they fashioned images. Of course, Israel themselves coming out of Egypt while, while, while Moses was getting these very commandments off of the mountaintop were down creating this golden calf, this idol, already breaking a, a commandment that they, had, they, they were about to receive. This is all about trust. It's all about trust. Idolatry is about trust. What do or who do you put your trust in? God says that I need to come first in your life and I need to be the one that you trust above all other things in your life. And there are so many things that can become idols to us. We might not have idols carved out of wood or stone or fashioned in the image of, of animals or, or, or people. But other things can become idols to us, can take that place of trust. Money, politics, relationships, and even religion, and, and on and on and on it would go. Things that we would put in the place of God that say, this is where I put my trust. Church, I think what we're seeing, I believe what we're seeing in our nation, the, 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 the reaping that is taking place in our nation is this, is we are getting the fruit of what we have put our trust in. That we have put our trust in man-made structures, in man-made systems, in, in things that are not God. And we've asked him to bless those things, but we've not put him first. We are called to put him first, to put our full trust in him. And just like the Israelites, we're, we're called to not have any idols, to not put our trust in anything other than the Lord. And then the third commandment, God says, do not misuse my name. Do not take my name in vain. That the name of God would be used only and ever to accurately reflect who he, is, who he is, that God's name, the name of God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, are important names. And that when we use his name, that we would not be using his name to justify our own selfish desires, our own way of thinking, the, our own framework, that the name of God would be used only and ever to bring glory, that it would reflect well his character and his kingdom. So we need to pray and we need to seek his face. We need to get an accurate picture of who God is and this happens in the place of humility and it happens in the place of intimacy as we draw close to him, as we examine our own hearts and ask those questions, is there anything or anyone that I have put in the place of God in my life? And then the final thing that he says to Solomon is this, after humility and prayer and seeking his face, is that we would repent, that we would turn from our wicked ways, that we would humbly seek the face of God and in so doing that our sin would be exposed. And as our sin is exposed, that we would fall on our faces before him, that we would weep and that we would repent, that we would turn from those wicked ways. See, when we gaze on the face of God, 
we will be exposed, we will be shown for who we really are. And God doesn't do this to shame us. He does it as an invitation of grace to be transformed in His presence. See, our appropriate response to humility and prayer in seeking His face and understanding who He is is that we would only and ever repent. That there is no person on the face of this earth who is righteous enough that they do not need to daily even moment by moment, repent before the Lord, inviting God to expose the sin and the deceit and the destruction that would so invade, that would so draw us away. Jesus says to us in John 10, 10, 10 that, the, that Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Those are the only things he knows how to do, and he is at work in the world around us, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. But that life is available to us when we repent, when we fall on our face before the Lord, when we cry out for mercy, when we ask him to expose us and then do a new work in us. King David writes this in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are, in, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David writes this psalm after his sin with Bathsheba is exposed. After what was done in secret, done in the dark, done selfishly, out of the flesh, murder and adultery, out of, out of these things, and David thought he'd got away with it because he was the king. He had power, he had influence. But God is not mocked that we reap what we sow. And, and David had sown to the flesh, and so he reaped a harvest of destruction, and he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And out of the, the brokenness of that sin being revealed and being brought into the light, David says these words, have mercy on me, O God. He says, my sin is always before me. My transgressions are always right there. I know about them. Those things that are wayward in us haunt us. They're, they're constantly in front of us. David says these words, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Church, there's something so critical for, for us to understand here that our sin isn't just against other people, that when we wrong others, yes, it hurts, and yes, it brings destruction, and yes, it brings division, but our, our primary place of sin, our primary place against transgression is against God himself. I believe we've lost some of the reverence that's needed when it comes to understanding that my sin is against God. That when I choose to walk in sin and not in repentance, that I sin and I do evil against God. David cries out, God, God, I've sinned against you. 
He goes on though in verse 10 to say this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, do something new in me. God, transform me. Create in me a pure heart. God, give me a heart that would desire to serve you, to to look to you only, to follow you, to represent you well. Create a steadfast, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Those three cries from David's heart, renew me, restore me, sustain me. Renew me, restore me, sustain me. God, I need to be renewed. I need to be made new. God, I need to be restored. I need need my life to be transformed. And God, I need you to sustain me. Restore my joy. Restore my salvation. Restore the, 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 the strength that comes from knowing and walking with you. My prayer for the church, for our church, and for the church is this. God, would you restore the joy of our salvation in knowing who we belong to and who you've called us to be. God, give us a willing spirit to follow you and you alone and that you would sustain us. In Second Chronicles, the call was to a nation to repent, to do the thing that David had done here, to repent, to turn from their wicked ways, that we would cry out with the same heart that David has before the Lord God. I've sinned against you. but Would you create in me a pure heart? Would you, as I come to you and I repent and I turn from my wicked ways, would you do a new work in me? Would you renew me and restore me? And I'll close with this. God's promise to his people, then and now, God's promise to you is that when you come and you humble yourself and you pray and you seek his face and you repent, you turn from your wicked ways, God says this, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Church, God's healing flows out of a place of repentance. God's healing flows from a place of repentance. This is a call to each of us, that each of us would take that responsibility, that we would be slow to speak, that we would be quick to listen, that we would be slow to become angry, that we would humble ourselves before the Lord, that we would pray and seek His face in church, that we would repent that we would fall on our faces before the Lord, that we would repent for our own sin, that we would repent on behalf of a nation, on behalf of the church, and that we would call out to God that we would seek his face. We have no power in and of ourselves to heal our nation. We just don't. And there is no person, there is no politics, there is no political party, there is no individual who can bring healing to this nation, that God alone can heal the land. But we have to put him first. We have to put him in his rightful place. We have to have an accurate representation of who he is. We need to use his name wisely and responsibly as an accurate accurate reflection of who he is. 
and we need to turn our hearts to him. So would you join me in praying today as we close? Holy Father, we come before you as the church, as your bride, the, one that you, the ones that you love. And God, we humble ourselves before you today. God, we ask that you would expose any pride. Lord, anything that has taken root in our own lives, in our own thinking, that would cause us to think that we know better. God, we come before you and seek your face. We call out to you in prayer. We cry out to you in prayer. And we seek your face, oh God. We need you. We need to see you, Lord. We want to be close to you. We want to be intimate with you. God, I pray that the world around us would fade away and that we would see you and you alone. And God, I pray that we would repent. We do. We repent of our sin. We repent of our personal sin. We repent, Lord, of the sin that is prevalent in the church. We will repent of the sin in our nation and the brokenness in our nation. God, would you show us how to walk, that we would turn from our wicked ways and we would choose to follow you. We choose today, God, to follow you, your holy and righteous name. Father, would you heal our land? Would you heal our land by your mighty hand? In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Church, as we continue to pray this week, I encourage you, would you get on your face before the Lord? Would you set aside that time? If you're not already fasting, would you choose to fast, fast a meal, fast from social media, fast whatever that looks like for you? Would you choose to fast this week and let's seek the Lord together for our lives, for our homes, our families, our marriages, our church, the church in our nation, and for our nation. May we bring peace and love and the light of who God is into every place that we go, every place where we have a touch point, that God's name would be lifted high and people would be drawn to him as we do. I love you, praying for you. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next time.